0: Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Belglade Alliance Church. Belglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Belglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.belgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. All right, I'm going to ask you a question now that I've just uh, made you aware through our prayer that you are still a sinful person. So let me ask you this. Raise your hand if you have ever had a conflict with another person. Raise your hand. I was hoping you'd hold your hands up longer. I wanted to see the one person who did not raise their hand. It kind of seems like conflict with other people is intrinsic to humanity. Everybody should have raised their hands, and I think everybody did. It's not a good thing. It's not something we celebrate, the fact that we have conflict with other people. But I think we're all aware of the fact that it is a reality. Uh, that we do that. I have numerous, maybe innumerable examples from my own life. Uh, I grew up with a brother. Let's start with that. If you have a sibling, then you know what it is to have conflict. Um, I'm not quick to say if you're married, um, but you know, if you're in any relationship long term, you're going to have moments of conflict. There's, the, we have seasons of interpersonal conflict. I remember even in high school getting into fights. Uh, I'd like to think that they weren't entirely or mostly or at all my fault, Um, but you know, stupid teenage boy, high school, I got into fights with other people. I remember even in adulthood, I would get into uh, conflict with bosses. Uh, I remember I had one boss who, didn't like the numbers I was producing at work, not because they were too low, but because they were too high and they overshadowed him. And so when people came down from corporate, they were patting me on the back. Meanwhile, my manager felt left out. I remember on one particular occasion, he had approved a vacation and we were on vacation and he called me up, I need you in here. I'm in another state. He says, if you don't get back here to be at work on this day, you're fired. Well, guess what? That wasn't happening. And sure enough, I came back and I didn't have a job. You know, So we have all kinds of conflict, and some of them can be pretty serious. But here's the thing. I think the worst, the hardest, the most hurtful conflicts or instances of conflict are when they take place in the church. And I think if we're being honest, this is the reality that there are conflicts that exist within the church. In the same way that you could say growing up with a sibling or, or having a spouse or uh, just looking at the countless times you were in interpersonal conflict uh, in the world throughout your life, you can imagine that there's also instances of conflict here at the church. I'll be honest, uh, I remember being, uh, when I took the permanent senior pastor position here, two weeks later, Carl Metzger called me up and he said, uh, Uh, Kevin you have a few moments I said sure he said there are some situations in the church that you probably should just at least be aware of so that pastorally you could navigate mediate in in the church so don't call him and say uh, why did you rat us all out but uh, uh, it's important that I had a heads up on some things as I came in here but it didn't take long for me to figure out some conflicts that existed uh, as I came into the church and over the last seven years There have been some flare ups and sometimes they got resolved and sometimes people left. And in case you're thinking, Oh my goodness, I didn't know about that. I'm part of a terrible church. How could we have conflict? Don't worry. There has not been a single church myself or Jenny has ever been a part of where there was not some conflict of some kind. But I think that the conflict that takes place in the church perhaps hurts a little more. It surprises us, right? Because this is a place where we don't tend to associate conflict. Uh, it hurts us more. It feels like a, a safe place has been violated. Uh, the conflict is like a rift in the family. It hurts de- cuts deeper. Uh, it places obstacles, perhaps, in our path of corporately worshiping God with his body because there are people in the room who, although we're supposed to love and they're supposed to love us, we are dealing with an instance or a season of conflict. Um, and I have, sadly, innumerable examples of those as well. I remember being with Jenny in the first church, well, no, the church she grew up in, and uh, my second church uh, that I was a member at. And I was so excited because it was my first church business meeting. Okay, I was a new member at that church, a voting member. I was so excited. I had an opportunity to participate as an adult. Remember, I came to faith as a teenager. So here I am, maybe 18, 19 years old, and I could participate in this. I could vote in this. I could be a contributing member of this church family. I'm at this business meeting, and I just couldn't believe what I was seeing and hearing. There was a faction that was trying to oust the senior pastor and so they're 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 saying cutting things to him they're arguing across the aisle to each other and i'm like oh my goodness in fact it was funny you may have heard me say this in the past it was at that moment i turned to jenny and said i will never go into pastoral ministry i don't ever want to be a pastor if this is how christians treat each other and this is how they treat the pastor i don't ever want to be a pastor but god had other plans apparently but I'll tell you even from that moment I saw I just could not believe that Christians could treat each other in such a way Uh, I could spend the next 30 minutes talking about many examples at many different churches and all it would do is dishearten you and make you walk out of here really sad but the reality is you know in our unsanctified lives you know not fully sanctified forgiven by God justified before him but yet our condition not yet matching our position in Christ. We still have a ways to go. During this season, between now and the time Jesus comes back, there's going to be moments of interpersonal conflict, even in the church. So the question doesn't become how do we avoid all conflict, because that's not possible, but instead, how can we handle it? That's what really matters. How do, we, and how do we handle it well when it arises in our midst? And In case you think this is an American problem, this is a, you know, a modern problem, no, the church has been dealing with conflict since the beginning. In fact, we've already seen some of it in our study of Acts, and we're going to see it again in our passage today. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open up with me to Acts chapter 15, and I figured I would give you a little refreshment because I've been preaching on passages that have been 25, 30, 35 verses. I figured today I'll only preach on two verses. How's that? So we're gonna look at today Acts chapter 15, verses one and two. You'll get the fuller treatment in two weeks on this passage, but here's what Acts 15 starting in verse one says. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Now let me go ahead and and give you some context here so you see what is kind of the root or what's behind this conflict that we see happening here if you remember, the, the gospel went forth to Jewish people, to whom it had been promised, in Jerusalem. And it was there that the church began to grow and flourish. In fact, it met on the, uh, the grounds of the temple in Jerusalem, and a great number of Jewish people committed their lives to the Messiah, to Jesus and even as the gospel began to spread out from there as persecution came against the christians in jerusalem it continued to go to communities of jewish people throughout uh, the region throughout samaria and judea uh, and, and and even beyond and it's, it was a jewish thing but remember what god promised at the very beginning that he would undo the results of the fall for everyone. And even when he called Abraham, through whom the Israelites, the Jews, came, he said, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God's plan was always to reconcile not just the Jewish people, but all people to himself. And so God used the Israelites, he covenanted with them, he had an authentic relationship with them, which he will never abandon, But through them, all peoples on earth will be reconciled. And we know how this happened because a particular descendant of Abraham, a particular Jewish man, was the one who was the Messiah, Jesus. And so we saw as we've been going through Acts where the transition took place where the Gospel, how it's been going among just the Jewish people, began to branch out to the Gentiles. In fact, in, as we've gone through Paul's first missionary journey, one of the exciting things for Paul and Barnabas, one of the exciting things for the church at Antioch, their home church, their sending churches they came back to, was the fact that the Gospel had gone forth in a very powerful and effective way among the Gentiles. And they were so excited how many of the Gentiles were turning from their ways and turning to the God of Israel, the one true God in Jesus Christ, the Messiah and Savior of all. But here's the thing. You have uh, God has been the God of Israel. The first Christians were all Jewish. They had grown up with their covenant relationship with God and all, of that, all that was expected in that. Circumcision on the eighth day following the law of Moses doing things a certain way and this has been Generation after generation after generation and now you have these people who are not from Israel who are not descendants of Abraham What do we do with them? If you remember as we've been going through acts, we've seen a couple different categorizations of people there are the Jewish people and then there are the Converts, Gentile converts to Judaism. And then there are the God-fearers, which are those Gentiles who believe that the God of Israel is the one true God, and they're learning and they're growing, but they haven't made a full conversion. And so in Judaism, there was this, this precedent. There was this understanding that if somebody had turned to the one true God, had turned to the God of Israel, that they would convert. And what conversion entailed was, again, circumcision, And obedience to the law and so the expectation now from some of these uh, Jewish Christians was that as Gentiles became Christians they in a sense were doing the same thing they were converting uh, you know or, or turning to the one true God in the same way and so what should be expected well the same thing as a Jewish convert circumcision and obedience to the law And so some are coming to those believers, those Gentile believers, that Paul has just proclaimed the gospel to. They had come to faith in Jesus, and they're coming to them now, and they're saying exactly what we see here. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And so you have here these people who've come to faith in Jesus. They've heard the gospel. They're part of the community of faith. They're worshiping along with both Jewish and Gentile believers And these people are coming and saying, you're not really saved, or you can't continue in your salvation if you don't also do these things. And so you can imagine, uh, as we're picturing here, it says that Paul and Barnabas entered into sharp dispute and debate with them. Well, guess what? There was a a theological disagreement, a big time one. It was conflict that that now came through two different ideologies of what do we do? with these new believers what ought to be expected of them how are they truly to be a part of this covenant community and two very different understandings of what that means and so in the same way that we have uh, conflict at different times in the church today we had conflict right here and it was a sharp dispute according to what Luke says here and we also see mediation by the church leaders as we move on. So we we think of Paul as a church leader. We think, man, the Apostle Paul, he wrote most of the New Testament. You know, when, when these churches had questions about theology, when they had questions about practice, they went to Paul, and Paul gave them such exquisite counsel. But here we see Paul actually being sent with Barnabas and others up to Jerusalem to meet With the apostles and the elders at what is the oldest and most established, the foundation, the headquarters, if you will, of Christianity in that time, the Jerusalem church. Conflict is a recurring reality. We've seen it already, right? Before this, we saw conflict in Jerusalem at the very beginning of the church. We saw conflict between the Hebraic and the Hellenized Jews. If you remember this account, uh, the, the Hellenized Jews were, were, were taking care of the widows. They were in charge of this distribution of food to the widows. And somehow the, the Hellenistic Jews were being completely overlooked. So I don't know what that looked like. Sorry, we ran out of food. Or you gotta wait till all the Hebraic Jews get it first. Or here's a big portion for a Hebraic Jewish widow and a small portion for a Hellenistic Jewish widow. I don't, we don't know. The uh, loop doesn't spell out what the conflict was, but there was a conflict because things were not being handled equally among all of the believers, uh, widows, as they had need. We saw conflict from the very, very beginning. We see in our passage yet another conflict, and we have conflict in the church today. In fact, the conflicts that exist in the church today are very similar to conflicts we see all the way back then. We do have disagreements in theology. Things that are important to us, things that we believe, things that we think we shouldn't waver on. There shouldn't be a diversity of opinion on certain things, uh, and and there's arguments. And there are certain things, the essentials of what it, the essentials of the faith that it, this is what it means to be a Christian. But oftentimes we tend to expand that and hold just as firmly to these other things and don't give grace or room for other people to disagree. In fact, even in the Christian Missionary Alliance right now, we're having lots of theological disagreement and even at times conflict as uh, not just in our church, but as the general Council, all the Alliance churches in the United States start to make uh, to, we're looking to possibly change the wording or even whether or not certain things should be included in our statement of faith. And so at general councils, we can watch people really get heated about certain things as we try to reason together over what should be in our statement of faith there's some hot button topics that we see not just in the christian missionary alliance but the baptist that's the southern baptist convention and others uh, including the role of women in ministry in uh, the alliance we're, we're talking about whether or not pre should be in our end times uh, statement in the doctrinal statement raise your hand if you couldn't care less about something about the end times in our doctrinal statement oh, just kidding you don't have to do that other people might judge you no we'll have conflict I don't want to be the source of conflict especially with this sermon but here's the thing I mean I just never knew just how passionate certain people were about certain things as they're yelling across the aisle from microphones uh, in general counsel the fact of the matter is human beings, even Christians, even within the context of the church, can have conflict. Sometimes we handle conflict well, a lot of times we don't. So sometimes theological disagreements occur even at the church level. I've been in several churches where this was the case as well. In fact, I had a strong theological disagreements with my senior pastor when I was serving as pastor of youth and young adults in Charlotte, North Carolina. That's awkward. Because in one sense, he's my manager, but the other sense, he's my pastor. And so when there's a conflict between you and your pastor, that just makes church really weird. And so these things exist. We also have disagreements in church decisions. This might be more common. You might see this more often. Perhaps you've even been involved or wanted to get involved in a conflict over this. Some things might you know, be about the selection of a pastor or the election of an elder or the appointment of a deacon or deaconess or decisions over the use of, of church money or the changes to the church building or choice of music. These are often sources of conflict in our modern American church, not just ours, I'm just speaking generally. Uh, and interpersonal conflicts between church members happen all the time, all the time. I didn't need Carl Metzger to give me a list because it was very quickly, easily, quickly and easily identifiable with some of the conflicts that ensued even here. They happen so the question is what should we do what do we do when conflict arises because we know it's going to arise in fact there might be conflicts I'm unaware of in the church even now I hope not but it's possible and it will happen again so what should we do when conflicts arise in the church well the first thing we should do is ask did Jesus say anything about this is there some scripture that we could point to is there some definitive instruction that's been given to us especially by our Lord and guess what Yes, there is. So open with me to your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. This is uh, one of those passages that if you just have a, a passion for memorizing scripture, go ahead and memorize this one. If you like to take notes or highlight things in your Bible, go ahead and do that with this. If you like to leave little bookmarks so you can find things later, put one here. Here's what it says. We're in Matthew chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 15. If you're still flipping there, it is up on the screen. If you don't have your Bibles with you, please pay close attention. This is probably some of the most practical and important uh, instruction for the church in any period of its last 2,000 years. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Okay. So quote it back to me without looking in your Bible. No, I'm just kidding. I'll ask you again next week. No, I'm just kidding. I'll tell you, man, so many conflicts I've been in, and I found myself guilty of not following this prescription, or so many times I've engaged in a conflict, like from a mediation standpoint as a pastor, and I'm like, okay, we just jumped right to stage three or four. Why haven't we started with one? Many times people have gone behind my back to complain to others, not in this church, thank the Lord, thank you, love you, Uh, but in other churches, even in that one in Charlotte, what happened to Jesus's prescription right here in Matthew 18? So let's talk about this. First of all, let me go ahead and say this. You may not have this impulse when you're in the midst of a conflict, but you should. Our goal, our desire should always be for redemption. Our goal, our desire should always be for redemption, not just for our redemption, for the other person, the one we're in conflict with. We should always be striving for redemption. And so here's what we need to do. Consider our conflict. uh, Well, here's the thing. Consider our conflict with God first. When we talk about this idea of our desire, our goal should always be redemption. Think about our conflict with God, right? We were wrong. We had transgressed him. We had rebelled against him. We were standing opposed to him in sin. And yet God desired our redemption. He didn't hate us. He didn't smite us. Instead, he loved us and made a way for us to be redeemed by sending Jesus. He sought our redemption. And so as we seek to mirror him, this should be our goal as well. And so to do this, Jesus gives instruction here. So here's the first thing he calls us to do to meet one-on-one, okay? The first thing we want to do in this day is blast somebody on Facebook. That's not what we're supposed to do. Or gossip to other people about what that other person did. That's not what we're supposed to do. One-on-one, this is what Jesus says in verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Be just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over, okay? There's, you know, I used to have a dog. I grew up with dogs, love dogs. What, are the, what do you do when the dog makes on the floor? You're supposed to stick their nose in it, right? It's bad. Don't do that. That's not what we're talking about here. When it says point out their sin, it's saying demonstrate to them where the, where the problem lies. If, if they've done something wrong to you, point that out to them. Let them know. A lot of times people will offend you. And they didn't even know they did didn't mean to or you misinterpreted them conflicts can often be worked out very very quickly and easily if you will just go and sit down and talk rationally to the person you're in conflict with so the first thing Jesus says is go and point out the fault show them what they've done or how you've taken what they've done and see if you could work it out just the two of you if they listen to you If if you come to an agreement or an understanding, if, if you're able to work past it then, how wonderful that it ends right there. Because we all know what happens if conflict persists further, things just get worse and worse and worse. But let's face it, there are times when you can demonstrate something that somebody clearly did and they were at fault for, and yet they don't care or they're not they're not taking, they're not owning up to it, they're not willing to reconcile over it. Well, Jesus gives a next step too. Here's what he says, bring two or three others. Now, I know what, I know the way I used to interpret this, right? You get into a conflict with somebody and you can't handle it yourself, you get two of your buddies along with you. That's not what Jesus is saying. We're not to gang up on the other person. You're not to find the other two people who think and agree just like you do and are automatically going to be uh, predisposed to being against the other person. This is not what he's saying. Instead, we should bring people who care about both parties. They should be objective. And just like us, their goal should be redemption. Their desire should be redemption. We see this in verse 16. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And the hope is that perhaps the people that come along may be able to mediate the situation. When we're wronged, we tend to really see the other person's fault clearly. Sometimes we may have to take some ownership for fault and sometimes having some outside objective parties might help us to mediate both sides of an issue and to resolve a conflict well. And that's the hope there. But sometimes, let's be honest, that may not work. Thank God Jesus didn't stop there. He gave, more, uh, he gave more suggestions. The third is to involve the church, to involve the assembly of God's people. And the most appropriate way to do that in our context today is by meeting with the pastor and or the elders. Right? The way our churches are structured, we have the ability to do that. Um, and so... Uh, that would be a good suggestion. All right. So here's what he says in verse 17. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And we'll get into that last part in just a minute. But again, going back to the uh, unsanctified Kevin, right? Telling it to the church does not mean this. It does not mean going pew by pew. You wouldn't believe what that person did. That's not what we're talking about. Even when I brought Joey and Jimmy along with me, They wouldn't listen to reason they got problems and all of a sudden everybody in the church knows your business from your perspective that is definitely not what Jesus is saying here again the most appropriate way to live this out in our context go and talk to I'm a good point person go and talk to your pastor your pastor will usually unless it can be resolved quickly there will bring in some elders we'll sit down and again mediate the conversation get an honest idea of what's going on and our goal also our desire is for redemption and then the fourth this might seem a little not like we picture Jesus maybe a little harsh but he says pretty much turn them loose right treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector that seems really harsh have we given up on redemption at that point no, come on. Jesus doesn't give up on redemption. So what do we mean by that? Uh, let's consider an example perhaps from Paul in his letter to the Corinthians. If you've got your Bible and want to flip over there, we're going to look at five verses in 1 Corinthians 5. If you don't have your Bibles with you, uh, it'll be up on the screen. But here's, here's another example of treating somebody, putting somebody out from the community of faith... And it's done for a reason. And I promise you, redemption never leaves the table. Redemption is always the ultimate agenda. Here's what Paul writes to the Corinthians, who had plenty of conflict, uh, in 1 Corinthians 5, starting at verse 1. He says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of every kind that even pagans do not tolerate. Uh, Yeah, by the way, Paul will always shoot straight. Uh, A man is sleeping with his father's wife. That's the problem that they're dealing with here in Corinth. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out uh, of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. And as uh, as one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Now I want to pause for a second, because we tend to interpret certain words and phrases certain ways. Kevin, you just said that redemption's not off the table. You even brought up a letter from Paul to demonstrate that, and yet Paul says, I've already made judgment cast him out hand him over to satan that doesn't sound like redemption But mind you what's at the end of verse 5 you're doing this so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the lord now paul's not necessarily addressing conflict there's issues going on i'm sure conflict has evolved there's issues going on in the church Uh, He's addressing an abhorrent ongoing unrepentant sin by a member of the Corinthian church and his judgment though uh, Is the same as Jesus's counsel in the passage that we just read? In other words expel them from the assembly of God's people That's what that's what Paul is saying. This isn't Paul's form of final judgment. Paul is not God Paul is not Jesus. He's not the son of man who's who's to give judgment over the world. Paul has no authority to give an ultimate judgment or damnation of a person, right? So that's not the kind of judgment we're talking about here. Uh, Paul's not looking for that kind of final judgment. This is Paul hoping that by being put out of the community of God's people, the person might come to ruin, recognize the error of his way, repent, and turn back to God. This is a final resort, if you will. And right now, in this situation, this is not something that this person is, is, is repenting of and turning away from and turning back to Jesus with. Similarly, in Jesus' instruction, after this person has been obstinate to every form of redemption, every form of reconciliation, will not own up to what they did. The hope is that by doing this, finally they will turn back and there will be ultimate redemption this is paul's hope for this person ultimate redemption and again the same is true in jesus's instruction try to work it out just between the two of you if that doesn't work bring two or three others in the hopes that that will work if it doesn't bring it to the pastor or the elders of the church and if that still doesn't work treat them as a as you would a pagan or a tax collector well, how many, how, many of you know, you know, how many of you associate certain people in our community as pagans and tax collectors? That's just not what we think about, right? Because that's something in, in this culture. So how would they have treated a pagan or a tax collector? Uh, as if they weren't truly part of God's community, of the community of Israel. As someone not included in the assembly of God's people. Why? Why treat them this way? So that they might come to a place of redemption through the trials of being apart from God's people. The hope is always redemption, and this is good, practical advice for us. What should we do when conflict arises? We should follow Jesus' prescription, and we should always desire redemption. So the question, getting back to our text today, what did Paul and Barnabas do when conflict arose in their midst? Again, our two verses from Acts, Acts 15, 1 through 2. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. So here's what we see taking place. Paul and Barnabas instantly recognized a problem in their midst. Paul and Barnabas addressed those who were in conflict, who they were in conflict with. They engaged in the conflict. The people who were doing the wrong, Paul and Barnabas addressed them. Uh, And as this was probably a public conflict, I can imagine that the instruction to include two or three others was done quite easily, even though Luke doesn't really spell that out for us. But what do we see finally? We see Paul and Barnabas travel to Jerusalem to involve the church, in their case, the apostles and the elders, uh, and they involve them in their situation, exactly like Jesus instructed. As we'll see in a few weeks, the church leaders make a determination in this matter, just as they had sought for them to do. So what ought we to do? When conflict arises in the church, what ought we to do? First, we cannot ignore it. And to be honest with you, some of us, maybe most of us, have the tendency to just avoid the conflict, to just kind of push it down, pretend it didn't exist. Uh, and you know what? That's really not a good thing. It doesn't do anybody any favors. Doesn't do the other person favor. Doesn't do you favors. Doesn't do the church any favors if we don't deal with it. I've seen people withdraw from the church to avoid conflict. Can I be honest with you? There are holes in our seating here today that are represented by those who have left our church over conflict just in these past seven years. That's the honest truth. I know who they are. I've watched them go. I've mourned watching them leave. And it comes from conflicts that could have been resolved, but were not resolved. Again, we cannot just pretend it doesn't exist. We have to deal with it. That's what any family does. If there's a conflict between your kids, do you just ignore it? Ah, it'll work itself out. Yeah, sometimes it does, but not in the way that you're happy with. We need to handle it rightly. We can't just ignore it, so please don't do that. When people leave, it splinters the church. It hurts the family as a whole. It deprives the church of the ministry gifts that the person has and it deprives us of being able to use our ministry gifts to bless them. It takes fellow teammates in our mission to this community and beyond out of the picture there's just so much fallout when people leave over conflict that was just ignored not everybody withdraws not everybody ignores uh others just or not everybody withdraws other people just push it down and ignore the problem they don't leave the church but they just don't deal with the conflict however that denies the other person the opportunity of repentance and spiritual growth It's only when we address it with them and they come to understand where the sin is, where the problem is, and we work through it together, that there can be redemption. It also causes resentment to brew in the heart and mind of the injured party. So please don't ignore it when conflict arises. Second, Second. take a deep breath, calm down, pray, and ask if you could speak with them directly. Again, that one-on-one that Jesus describes. Take them down to an empty classroom after church. We've got plenty. Please feel free to close the door and have a conversation there, you and the other person, if you're involved in a conflict. Invite them to lunch, perhaps, something disarming. Take them out and discuss it rationally with them. There. Do it in person. Do it soon. Do it well. Please. Um, and remember that your hope is for redemption. That uh, doesn't mean that you're gonna, your relationship is going to be perfect after that. It doesn't mean you're necessarily going to trust them right away or ever again, depending on what it was that they did. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you, you're not, you're not going to just gain back their trust. Things may not ever be exactly the way they are, but you need to work through the issue. You must desire their redemption, and you must be willing to offer your forgiveness. And just as Jesus forgave us, we are called to forgive others as they sin against us. And the third, if they're not responsive after meeting one-on-one, do what Jesus says and bring two or three others. Maybe don't bring your angry spouse and your brother with you. You know, those who are instantly heated and always on your side and not looking objectively at this moment. Bring two or three others. Find two other members who love you and love the other person who you're in conflict with. Uh, people who exhibit patience and wisdom trust me we need as much patience and wisdom in the midst of any conflict (coughs) and make a plan for you all to sit down and talk through this and fourth if all of that doesn't work come and talk to me and i'd be happy to 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 pull in our elders on this conversation and intercede and then trust the leadership that god has given you in the church Uh, trust the the leaders that the congregation has elected Uh, trust the process and trust that we love you and the other person and that our desire is for redemption for all parties and that will always be true in conclusion i just want to read this these two verses from romans chapter 12 again paul's words he says do not repay anyone evil for evil Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You know, if we're a part of a community organization and there's conflict and we're uncomfortable there, we could leave it, right? Um, There are so many contexts in which we could just drop out of the situation and nothing's changed. It's different when it's family and the church is family we have to address it and we have to resolve it and we have to deal with it well because all of us those who are included in the conflict those who are on the outskirts and not included in the conflict the person who is the, uh, per, uh, the person who offended and the person who was offended everybody suffers when there's conflict in a church that is not handled well and so as these opportunities arise as these situations rather arise Let's deal with it well together. Thank you.